This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Power of Motivation. In the first half, we hear Sterling W. Sills' classic 1978 address, Motivations. Then in the second half, Sharon G. Samuelson speaks on Building Your Bridges. My brothers and sisters, I appreciate very much this great privilege that I have of having some part with you in the activity of this wonderful university. Not only do I always get a thrill when I come on this campus, but I get a thrill when I even think about the great numbers of you who have this wonderful privilege of coming here and spending your life in studying and thinking and enjoying the leadership of the great teachers that you have here. And this is a place where you can come to pray and live and enjoy the great wonders that have been provided for you in this great age. I'd just like to say to you that you live in the greatest age that has ever been known in the world. Your forefathers lived on a flat, stationary earth and plowed their ground with a wooden stick, whereas you live on an earth of power steering and jet propulsion with all kinds of knowledge explosions. And the thing that we need to do is to have a character and a personality to match the times. You live in the greatest nation that has ever been known since creation. How grateful we ought to be that we didn't have the kind of leadership in our founding fathers that used Stalin blood purges and Hitler gas ovens and Castro indignities as the instruments of government. Just think what a different kind of people we might be and what a different nation this would be if we had had the leadership of other men other than those that God raised up to write our Constitution and establish this nation upon Christian principles. You live in a time when the knowledge of medicine gives us strong bodies and clear minds. If you had lived in Jerusalem 1900 years ago, your life expectancy at birth would have been 19 years. That is, people lived and died in that period. Some people lived to be 90, I suppose, and a great many died at birth, but the average span of life then was 19 years. If you had been born in George Washington's day in America, you would have had an expectation of life of 35 years. When I was born, it was 48 years. But the baby that was born in the Provo Hospital today has an expectation of 75 years. Now that's a great period of time, I know, because that's just uh, how far I've come. Somebody once said to his friend, have you lived here all of your life? And he said, not yet. <laughs> but I'm very grateful for the 27 years of life that have been given me above the promise that was made when I was born. And how grateful we ought to be that God is adding to our, and our civilization is adding to our life expectation to give us more time to make more out of this great period of our second estate. And if any of you plan to remember anything that I'm going to say to you tonight, I'd just like to have you write this in your notebook that, and I'm sure of this, that the one business of life is to succeed. 
I'm absolutely certain in my own mind that God did not go to all of the trouble of creating this beautiful earth and with all of its utilities and beauties and opportunities without something very important in mind for those that he expected to live here upon it. And I'm even more sure that he didn't create us in his own image and endow us with these potentially magnificent brains and these miraculous personalities and these fantastic physical bodies and then expect us to waste our lives in failure. And yet I'm sure of this, that the greatest waste there is in the world is not the devastation that goes with war. It isn't the cost of crime. It isn't the erosion of our soils or the depletion of our raw materials or the loss of our gold supply. The greatest waste there is in the world is that human beings, you and I, live so far below the level of our possibilities. That is, compared with what we might be, we're just partly alive. That is, we sometimes become guilty of those great sins of fractional devotion and marginal morals, and we turn in a minimum performance. What good does it do to have this great nation and this great earth on which we live if we don't live our lives at the top of our condition? What good does it do for us to come here and and do the things that might have been done at other times? That is, we have these longer lives and medicine gives us the clear minds and strong bodies. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored in a fullness never before known in the world. The pathway to immortality is now brilliantly lighted and perfectly marked so that no one need get off that straight and narrow way except by his own choice. But I suppose it doesn't help us very much unless we make something out of it above what was made out of it in other times. Now we live in this great uh, period and you have the extra favorable opportunities of coming to this great university where you may have the greatest intelligence as your teachers and the greatest information that has been developed in all of the world for your benefit. Now one of the problems and one of the things that I'd like to talk to you a little bit about tonight is that great power of evil in our lives that uh, we sometimes might call inertia. That is, there's a natural tendency in, in nature for things to remain inert. That is, the stone rests on the mountainside for a thousand years. It, it, it is inert. It has no power within itself to move. But that is in all other nature. You shoot a bullet through the most powerful rifle, and as soon as it uses up the momentum stored in the power, it, it stops and comes to rest. You drive your automobile down the highway, and unless you're constantly putting new fuel in the gas tank, it runs out of gas, and the automobile wears out its momentum and stops. Now, human beings tend to be like that. We have a a natural instinct within us to be inert, to be inactive, to come to rest. To We have a great uh, appetite like the stone on the mountainside to just stay put, not to be as active as we ought to be. You can push the stone over the mountainside and it rolls down the hill, but as soon as it wears out the momentum, it comes to a stop. Somebody wrote a poem about this as it applies in human Life. I don't know who the author of this was. I 
I wish I did know, I guess, but this is what he said. I wish I was a little rock a-sitting on the hill, a-doing nothing all day long except just sitting still. I wouldn't eat, I wouldn't sleep, I wouldn't even wash. I'd sit and sit a thousand years and rest myself by gosh. Now, isn't that an inspiring poem? Doesn't that just get you all excited where you want to go out and turn over the world and do a lot of wonderful things and be helpful in the community? While we're thinking about great poems, I'd, some time ago I was down in Louisville, Kentucky, when the Kentucky Derby was run. And because I like to investigate success, I'd, I thought I'd like to find out why it was that one of the jockeys in this race could get his horse to run around that track faster than anybody else could get his horse to run around. You know, Aristotle said one time that you never know a thing until you know it by its causes. That is, every success has a cause. Every failure has a cause. Indigestion has a cause. Overweight has a cause. If you can find out what causes overweight, you can usually eliminate the cause. Now, if you can find out what causes success, you can reproduce the cause. And I knew that someday, probably, some you'd invite me to come down here, and I thought you'd like to have me have some success facts along to help you with. And so I checked up and discovered an interesting thing that this jockey won the race by reciting poetry to his horse. I'd never heard of anybody doing that before, and I checked into it a little bit, and I knew that you'd want to know what the poem was, and I'm prepared to leave a copy of it here with you if you'd like it. But this is what this jockey said to the horse as they went around the racetrack, which inspired the horse to do his best. He said, roses are red and violets are blue, and horses that lose are made into glue. And that so inspired the horse that he won the race. <laughs> now, life has written some glue poems for us. We think of the master as a very kind-hearted, gentle, fine person, and I'm sure he was. But the Lord said some kind of severe things to some people sometime. And I checked through a little bit to find out what seemed to me in all of the works of the Bible what and other places, what seemed to me to make the Lord feel the worst or get him the most upset. And he said some sort of harsh things, and the Lord had a sympathetic interest with the repentant adulteress. He was uh, very friendly with the thief on the cross who wanted to do better. But to this lazy person, this fellow who didn't do what he, what he, what he was asked to do, you remember the Lord gave him the money and wanted him to put it out and make something out of it. And when he returned, he gave him his money back and said, I was afraid. So I hid my talent in the ground and have brought forth nothing. You remember what the Lord said to him? The Lord said, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Now, he was a servant. He wasn't an enemy. He wasn't a traitor. He was a, he was a servant. I suppose he was a member of the church, but he was inactive. See, now that's a common fault. I heard somebody say the other day, a member of the genealogical committee, that all of the genealogical work of the church is done by 2% of the members. 2% do the work. Then under the 2, there's 8% that do the praying and bear their testimonies about genealogical work, but they don't do any work. Then there are 80% that don't even bear their testimonies or say their prayers about it. 
Now there's a small percent that do the other things, that pay the tithing and go on the missions, and though we're improving in a lot of things, and hopefully we'll sometime be up a little higher than 2% in some places. But think of, uh, you remember the vine dresser who said to his son, go and work in the vineyard. And one said, I won't go. And the other said, I go, sir, but went not. And all of those that were in the class of the one who said I, who promised to go and didn't go, he said, the publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. That is, he put the publicans and harlots back in the line beyond the one who promised to do the work of the Lord and didn't get it done. And then you remember his promise for our own day, that when he comes, he's going to divide the people into two great groups. One are the ones who've done as he asked us to do. They're the doers of the word. They're the ones that live these great principles that we come here to understand and know something about. And to them he's going to say this, Come, ye blessed of my Father, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now that'd be wonderful to be in that group. And that he said to those over on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. I never knew you. I can't find anything in the Bible or any place else where he takes such a, a harsh attitude as somebody where we just talk about our religion and, and don't do it. We don't live it. We're not doers of the word. And mostly we're not just bad people. Somebody said, uh, some great uh, sales manager said about his salesman, he said, there are no lazy salesmen, they're just salesmen who lack motives. See, we have this power of inertia, tending us to stay at rest. Now, the Lord has given us some other powers that we might call initiative or motivation by which we can overcome inertia. And we can be doers of His Word. We can do the thing that would please Him most, which is to keep the commandments, to just obey the Word of the Lord. The greatest success formula that has ever been given in the world is... And I don't care very much what you're doing, but it's just to keep the commandments, just to do what the Lord says you ought to do. There isn't anybody in, in any business organization that would rather have somebody who violated the word of wisdom or broke the Ten Commandments or didn't understand the Beatitudes or didn't know the Articles of Faith. Everybody, everyone who gets married wants somebody, the same kind of a person that the the Lord wants in the church someone to keep the commandments. And I thought maybe I'd just like to talk to you a little bit about this uh, idea of motivation, of getting ourselves overcoming this uh, dead weight that pulls us down sometimes that we call inertia, our lack of initiative. Now there might be a lot of them. I'm just going to mention a half dozen here. Before I do that, I'd like to give you an illustration of what I'm going to try to say and this illustration actually is an, it comes from an evil source, but the principle is still good, I think. <laughs> In 1929, Adolf Hitler, a young army corporal, sat in his prison cell in Germany, writing in his book Mein Kampf his plan to make Germany the greatest nation in the world. And the fact that starting out single-handed, he almost upset the world, indicated that he had something. All right, how did he do it? The answer's in his book. He said, The question of Germany regaining her power is not how to manufacture or distribute arms, 
but how to produce in people that will to win, that spirit of determination, which produces a thousand different methods, each of which ends with arms. Now, you don't win wars with tanks or guns or airplanes or oil. You win wars with that spirit of determination inside of people. And that's how you save souls, and that's how you build great universities, and that's how you become great scholars, and that's how you become great scientists, by overcoming this thing that tends to hold us down and keep us inactive and keep us from doing the thing that uh, there are a lot of people that know what is right, but we don't always follow through. Now, let me just mention some of these things by which we might get ourselves in motion. Socrates said one time, he who would move the world must first move himself. The first motive factor number one. You might have a lot of others, but I hope some of you will remember these. Number one, we motivate people, including ourselves mostly, with ideas. Now, there are a lot of ideas. Victor Hugo said one time that the most powerful influence in the world is an idea whose time has come. And an idea's time comes when we get a harness on it and so that it can be made to do work for us. Now, where are we going to get ideas? And I'd just like to suggest to you that the best ideas that you will probably ever have in your lives are those that you yourself think, that those that you yourself have worked out. Now, we're not going to limit it to that, but we have a lot of wonderful sources of ideas. Here are the, here are the thrilling scriptures. I get a little chill up and down my backbone every time I think that I can open the Holy Scriptures and read the Word of the Lord. I know what He would like to have me do. I can go back and relive the Antimortal Council in heaven. I can go up ahead and pre-live the Celestial Kingdom. In the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, I can find out who's going to be there and who's going to be in all of the other kingdoms and all of the things almost as though I were having a conversation with the Lord. All right, what a thrilling thing. Now we have the great poets. Somebody said the poets stand next to the prophets in their ability to lift us up. Now, I'm not going to talk to you very much about that, but uh, one of my heroes many years ago used to be Grantland Rice, the great sports writer who used to go around the country following the champions of sport. And he tried to isolate those traits that made athletes champions. And then he wrote some 700 poems about them. One of them was entitled Courage. He said, I'd like to think that I can look at death and smile and say, All I have left now is my final breath. Take that away, and you must either leave me dust or dreams or in far flight, the soul that wanders where the stardust streams through endless night. But, said he, I'd rather think that I can look at life with this to say, Send what you will of struggle or of strife, blue skies or gray, I'll stand against the final charge of hate by peak and pit, and nothing in the steel-clad fist of fate can make me quit. Now, he wasn't a dropout. He wasn't about to get weary on some good course that he was following. Ernest Hemley was a hopeless cripple when he wrote Invictus and said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. 
Beyond this veil of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Just think of the great philosophies, the great ambitions, the great enthusiasms that we can get into our mind. And as we try to become the master of a few more ideas, we ought to memorize a lot more. We sometimes read so lightly that our brain skates over the surface and, and the ideas are gone almost before they are acquired. I was out in the mission field the other day and I heard a mission president say to a group of people that when any missionaries came out that are over 40 years of age, he never asked them to memorize because you're too old when you're 40 to memorize. Now, I'm about twice that age and I can memorize three times as fast as I could when I was 19. Not that my brain is more retentive, but my interest is greater. And I'd like to let you in on a secret and I know a little bit about this. If you have that much brain and that much interest, you won't learn nearly as fast as if you have that much interest and just that much brain. <laughs> now, I only have that much brain. But isn't this exciting that I can get just as interested in the greatest subjects and even those subjects that God himself is interested in? I can get just as excited about them as I want to. And then we can learn very rapidly. I heard of a woman once who was, somebody asked her what her age was and she didn't want to be too specific and she said, I'm around 40 and her friend said it must have gone around a second time. <laughs> now mine's nearly completed the circle twice and I'd like to have you know if it's of any value to you that it's an easy thing if we just practice it a little bit to get these great ideas into our mind. What do you think you could accomplish if you had this one in your mind that someone wrote entitled The Champion. He said the average runner sprints until the breath in him is gone. But the champion has the iron will that makes him carry on. For rest the average runner begs when limp his muscles grow. But the champion runs on leaden legs. His spirit makes them go. The average man's complacent when he's done his best to score. But the champion does his best. And then he does a little more. Now, we live in this great age of wonders and enlightenment, and if we can have a mind that goes along with it and responds to this wonderful information and this great and very fortunate situation in which we find ourselves, then we're well on our way toward making our lives as successful in the sight of the Lord as they ought to be. Now, not motive factor number two. We're motivated by people. We're motivated by great ideas. But we can motivate ourselves and others by other people. Most, we work harder for others than we do for money or for almost any other consideration. Edgar A. Guest put this idea down in writing under the title, The Purpose. Why do you peddle a fruit, said I, to a huckster of melons passing by? Why do you shout from dawn till gloam, said he, for the wife and the kids at home? Why do you dig in the ditch, I ask, of a grimy laborer sorely tasked? And this was the reason such work he did. I got it a wife. I got it a kid. On they go down that busy street, eager toilers with hurrying feet, butcher, baker, and banker grave. Why do they work? Why do they slave? What is it that moves them to work and plan? 
What is the motive of every man? Stop him and ask him what holds him fast, dreaming and striving to serve at last. And with polished speech and accent queer, this is the purpose that you'll hear. Each will say as the digger did, I got it a wife, I got it a kid. And that's the purpose that moves us all, a home and a wife and children small. Now you come to this great church university where all of life we're taught that all of the most important part of life has to do with ourselves and our families and our friends and, and our friends across the seas and around the world. It's our, it's our job and our privilege to help them to qualify for ultimate success in their eternal life. Now you try to think of something more exciting than that if you can. Some time ago I heard a story about a young high school football quarterback. Just before the final game of the year, his father died, and the coach said to him, Now, Bill, we don't expect you to be to the game Friday. We can get along all right, and we, you don't need to come to the rehearsals. And, but he said, No, I want to play. I can play. I, I, and he was very upset about it that the coach wasn't going to play him. And he said, I'll be here, and I want to play. And the coach didn't understand it, but he thought this boy seemed to know what he was talking about. So he said, Okay, you come and we'll start you out and see how you get along. And he went into the game and and he threw the passes and ran the ends and kicked the punts and blocked the tackles and generaled his team like Superman. The coach couldn't understand it. He'd never done anything like this. And they won an overwhelming victory. And after the game was over, they walked off the field and the coach put his arm around this boy and said, Bill, would you like to tell me about it? How is it that you could do these things under these circumstances? And this boy said, Coach, what you may not know about this situation is that my father was blind. And this is the first game that he's ever seen me play. I see, all of us would be a little more interested if we thought our father in heaven was watching. Or our wives or our children would like to see us do something honorable sometime. I see, we're very interested by others. Just think what we can do for a lot of other people. All right, we work for people. Motive number three. The consciousness of a great skill is a high motivator, has high motivational qualities. When we learn to do something better than anybody else can do it, and everybody ought to do something better than anybody else in the world can do it. Pick out those things that you can do, that you're expected to do better than anybody else. Somebody wrote a, Douglas Malick wrote a poem about this, Be the best of whatever you are. He said, if you can't be a pine on the top of the hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub by the side of the rill. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. That's the first verse, and that's a great one. Now, here's the second one. If you can't be a bush, be a bit of the grass, and some highway the happier make. If you can't be a muskie, then just be a bass, but the liveliest bass in the lake. That's the second verse, and that's a great one. Now, the third verse. We can't all be captains. There's got to be crew. There is something for all of us here. There are great things to do, and there are lesser things to do. And the thing you must do is the near. That's the third verse, and that's a great one. Now the fourth verse, he said. If you can't be a highway, then just be a trail. If you can't be a sun, be a star. For success is not measured by greatness or small, but by being the best of whatever you are. I missed that just a little bit, but you wouldn't know the difference, so... But any, anyway, 
And I'd just like to suggest to you, to you students particularly, under these wonderful opportunities that you have, that we ought to go out and practice the things that we do, and we ought to do something It may be that we can be more punctual than anyone else. Abraham Lincoln excelled in honesty. There are a lot of things that you can excel in where you don't really have very much competition. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> the, the consciousness of a high skill gives you great motivational power. All right, number four, the awareness of the reward. I was down in California some time ago, and I found a missionary down there preaching some false doctrine. I heard him say to a contact, he said, missionaries don't get paid. He said, we work for nothing. When the contact had gone, I said to the missionary, now that's the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard anybody say and make in my life. Whoever told you, how did you ever figure out that missionary didn't get paid? I thought the Lord said that if you labor all of your days and bring just one soul into him, how great your reward's going to be. I asked him if he remembered what the Lord said about the worth of a soul being greater than the wealth of all of the earth, and he did. And I asked him if he knew what the earth was worth, and he didn't. I had a newspaper clipping that said the assessed valuation of just one little section of the United States alone, California, Arizona, and Nevada, was worth over a trillion dollars. I got this boy a piece of paper and a pencil, and we had him write a trillion dollars down on the paper. That's 12 zeros out here, if you don't know. You try this sometime. He brought in a, a convert each month for the past 12 months, of which is all the time he'd been out. So I had him figure out that if he worked 30 days in a month and worked 10 hours a day, that'd be 300 hours to save a trillion-dollar soul. Then I had him divide a trillion by 300, and he figured he was getting $3,333,000,000 per hour. <laughs> I said to him, what was the most that anybody ever paid you when you were at home? And he said, 75 cents. <laughs> I said, all right, now what were you trying to get those poor people to believe when you said that missionary didn't get paid? See, there's some people that think that parents don't get paid or that bishops don't get paid or that scoutmasters or that great people who are trying to do the work of the world or that teachers don't get paid. See, that's, uh, that's ridiculous. You get the highest pay that there is in the world. When you're doing God's work, you get God's pay. Somebody's compared the scripture just to a great collection of promissory notes. Every command has a promise attached. Pay your tithing, and you'll get the reward that you won't be able to contain it. Honor your father and your mother, that thy days may be long upon the land. Keep the word of wisdom, and this is going to happen. There isn't any promise that hasn't a commandment attached. Now, just go over the rewards and think about it. What do you think about this? The Lord said, He that receiveth my servants receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth my father. And he that receiveth my father receiveth my father's kingdom. Then all that my father hath shall be given unto them. Now, we all like to inherit from a wealthy parent. You try to imagine what it would be like to inherit from God, to get everything that God has. Somebody said that thrift is a great virtue, especially in an ancestor. Now, God has been very thrifty, and he's been very wise, and he's promised that if we do a few little easy, simple things— that he's going to give us everything that he has, including his station. He's already given us his physical form and his mental potentialities and all of these other wonderful traits, and he's trying to do it as fast as he can develop us to where we'll take advantage of them. All right, motive number five. 
You must have fun out of whatever you do or it won't succeed. Shakespeare said there's no profit comes where there's no pleasure taken. If you don't enjoy the work that you're doing in the church or if you don't enjoy the work that you're doing outside of the church, then you better repent because in either case you're wrong. That is, you're not doing it right if you don't have fun. Now, I'm not going to spend very much time on that. I'd like to talk to you about number six here a little more. I've taken too much time back up the way someplace. <laughs> number six is to have a great conviction about something. I've been going around the world for a quite a little while, and when I see somebody who believes in himself and believes in his job and believes in his university and believes in the work that life has given him to do, what a thrilling thing it ought to be, it seems to me, to be a, a good farmer or a good school teacher or a good plumber or a good electrician or whatever you're going to be. You're helping to carry on the work of the world. Now, to have some convictions about something. Let me tell you about a man who had some conviction. On May the 10th, 1940, Winston Churchill was made the Prime Minister of England. At that time, the German Air Force was making round-the-clock trips across the Channel, dumping plane load after plane load of bombs on England. Nobody knew whether the British would be able to hang on for another week or a month. But everybody knew that if they were going to have any chance to win, they had to have some new leadership in the government. These men had failed, and so on May the 10th, 1940, they dropped the burdens of this great groggy empire on the shoulders of this one man and said to him, Okay, Winston, you go ahead and win the war with your bare hands. That is, he didn't have anything more to win it with than the others had had, except that he had some convictions and some courage down inside of him that some of them didn't have. And he went on the radio and started to make some of those great motivating speeches. I mean, he himself believed in what he was doing. And one of his speeches, he said, We shall not flag nor fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight with growing confidence and power in the air. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We will fight on the landing ground. We will fight in the fields and the streets. We will never surrender. And if which I do not for a moment believe, this empire or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empires beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, will carry on the fight until in God's own time the new world in its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Now, what would you think if you were to given an assignment comparable to this? Usually all the assignments that we get are little easy, simple, pleasant things like teaching school or practicing medicine or practicing law or something where we get a lot of pay and some other things. And Winston Churchill was going to go out and have to kill a lot of people and probably destroy half of the world. This is what he said about that day of May the 10th, 1940. He said, as I went to bed at about 3 a.m., I was conscious of a profound feeling of relief. At last, I had authority to give direction over this whole scene, and I felt as though I were walking with destiny, that my past life had been but a preparation for this hour, for this trial. I could not be reproached either for having made the war or for lack of preparation for it. And yet I felt I knew a good deal about it, and I was sure I would not fail. Or I'd fail to do what? Well, fail to save the world from the greatest mechanized might ever known in the world with his bare hands. Somebody said one man can, if he will, change the morale of a whole community. 
Now, it wasn't very long before these people on both sides decided that this old man, who was far past the retirement age, didn't have the slightest intention of surrendering. He wasn't about to give up. He wasn't going to quit. And he began to talk to other people about it, and everybody began to stand up a little straighter and take a little greater pride in their country and in their work, and the production began to go up, and, and uh, everybody else got into the performance a little bit better, and, and soon we won the war. But probably the center of the victory was in this rugged old Englishman who had some convictions about right and about his country and about himself and about those with whom he was associated. Now I'd like to tell you just two more short stories and then we'll be through. Each uh, year at this time of the year the president of the church invites the general authorities of the church to meet with him and the other members of the first presidency in the upper room at the temple and he talks to us a little bit about the conference and some other things and he bears us again his magnificent testimony and he calls on some other people and we have a delightful period of worship and association there together and the last of these meetings was attended by President McKay. We were all dressed and waiting in the room and when they reeled in two wheelchairs, one had in it Thorpe Isaacson, the other had in it David O. McKay. I've known Brother Isaacson for a long time and he's been a good friend of mine and I tried to shake hands with him, but he was paralyzed on this side, and so he shook with his left hand, and then in response to my greeting, he said, ah, or, uh, or something. Uh, I mean, so far as I know, in the last five years of his life, he didn't have a one word that was, was negotiable, so far as I could understand, at least. And, and then I sat uh, about six feet away from President McKay, and he didn't attempt to rise out of his chair, as he usually did with all of his vigor and power. He sat in his chair and everything was deathly silence and I was just a little ways away and I could hear probably one word out of every five or six but uh, I could hear enough and I knew from past uh, association with him what he was trying to say but I couldn't hear him and I thought of uh, these two great men who had both in their day been powerful athletes but now neither one of them could stand up and neither one of them could speak and what a thrill it would be for them to run up and down the street and jump over the fences and knock on the doors and bear their testimonies and, and do the home teaching and get the genealogical work and the missionary work and all of the other things that the Lord would like to have us do. But see, the time for that had passed. Now, maybe that's a little more impressive to me than it might be for you because I've been around a little bit and, and I remember what uh, Isaiah, was it, maybe you said that Someday in each of us, our cases, the summer would be passed and the harvest would be ended and, and maybe we haven't done all the things that we'd like to do. Now, because I have so many things left that I'd like to get done, I feel a little greater sense of urgency than most people. I, I'm in a hurry. I, there's a lot of things that I'd like to do. I'm not ready to find out that my second estate has come to an end, but there's a lot of things that I'd like to do before that. And I'd like to just leave that idea with you that some of you are much younger, but the time is going to come when you come to the end of your life. The time is going to come in every person's case when this magnificent experience of a second estate is going to be marked with a finish mark. Now the other story that I'd like to tell you in conclusion. This is a story that came out of Arabia many years ago when a a horseman was riding across the desert at night, and as he went through a dried-up riverbed, 
a voice out of the darkness commanded him to halt and dismount, which he did. Then the voice commanded him to fill his pockets with the pebbles at his feet, which he did. And then the voice commanded him to remount and ride on, which he did. And as he rode out through the dark, the voice said to him, At sunrise you will be both sad and glad. And at sunrise he looked in his pockets, and the pebbles he'd picked up were diamonds and rubies and emeralds and sapphires and pearls. And then he was both glad and sad. He was very glad that he'd taken as many as he had. And he was very sad that he hadn't taken a lot more. <laughs> now, I'd just like to suggest that to all of us that there's going to someday come a time when we're just going to be delighted. We're just going to be so pleased that we've lived in this magnificent latter day when the gospel has been restored, where there's no question about what the Lord wants us to do and what, what would make our lives successful. And when we have a great university like the Brigham Young University, and other great universities. We can have as much education as we desire in any field. I read a newspaper item the other day that said that 80% of all of the scientists who have ever lived upon the earth are alive now. And certainly the Lord didn't save his greatest scientists to come forth in this magnificent day and then bring forth a lot of uh, religious leaders or somebody else that were second rate. I mean those who lead us in the church are among the great spirits who have ever lived upon this earth. I'm sure of this, that as the Prophet Joseph Smith said, every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of this earth was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before the earth walls. Now that means that Spencer Kimball was presented by the Lord in the council of heaven, and he was voted upon by all of us to come here and be the prophet of this last dispensation in this particular period to increase the missionary work and the effectiveness of the church in other places. And I'm sure that all of us were there and all of us voted for him and, and then we were approved and voted on to come here and be of assistance to him because he's only one man. After all, he's the head, he's the director, but he needs a lot of other hands and feet to go and, and do the missionary work and do the genealogical work and and to run the financial affairs of not only the church and the government and the nation, and, but do all of the work the Lord said to him, everything is spiritual. And I'm sure that's true of the Lord. Now we come here in this great day and someday we're just going to be tickled to pieces. We're just going to be delighted that we've had the opportunity of living in this great period. And probably all of us are just going to be awfully sad that we haven't taken greater advantage of our opportunities to live up at the top of our condition and be the kind of people that the Lord would be proud of. You remember he said to his, about one of his sons on four different occasions, he introduced him by saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And I'm sure he'd be just as pleased to say that about any of his sons or any of his daughters if we would just give him the opportunity. And may the Lord bless you, my brothers and sisters, and again I commend you and thank you and I glory in the great privilege that you have of being alive in this great age and being in attendance at this great university. And I ask the Lord's blessings upon each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Power of Motivation. We've just heard from Sterling W. Sill. After the break, we'll return with Sharon G. Samuelson for Building Your Bridges.
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Power of Motivation. Next is Sharon G. Samuelson, wife of former BYU President Cecil O. Samuelson, titled Building Your Bridges. Fall has always been one of my favorite times of the year. I love the changing colors of the leaves and the crispness in the air. I remember the excitement I felt in my younger years at the beginning of a new school year. Even though I am no longer attending school, I am blessed to be associated with all of you here at Brigham Young University. It is a pleasure for me to have the opportunity to share this exhilaration with you and express a heartfelt welcome to fall semester at this wonderful place. Hopefully your summer months were pleasant and the memories will not be forgotten during the exciting and sometimes stressful days ahead. This past summer, I had the opportunity to travel over and sail under one of the marvels of New York City, the Brooklyn Bridge. It is one of the oldest suspension bridges in the United States and was completed in 1883. It connects the New York City boroughs of Manhattan and Brooklyn by spanning the East River. At the time of its construction, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world and continued to be so until 1903. It was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1964 and a National Historic Civil Engineering Landmark in 1972. The Brooklyn Bridge took 13 years to complete and could not have been constructed and endured these many years without detailed blueprints, knowledge of mathematics, use of strong and sturdy materials, innovative tools and equipment, as well as careful and strategic planning and study. There was also much diligent and hard work involved in the process. Construction did not always go as planned, and accidents occurred, and lives were even lost. There were times of discouragement as well as satisfaction during those 13 years, but a bridge was erected that is strong and safe. The original designer was John Roebling, who died as a result of an accident which occurred when he was conducting surveys for the bridge project. He began construction of a bridge he never had the opportunity to cross, and it stands today as an engineering marvel. All of you here today are crossing bridges you did not build but were constructed by others to bless your lives in many ways and circumstances which are truly remarkable. Your education at Brigham Young University is possible because of men and women who valued education and learning in an atmosphere of faith. They built these bridges through their hard work, foresight, and testimonies of what Brigham Young University could and would become in the future. For example, there is the prophet Brigham Young, who asked a German convert, Carl G. Mazur, to go to Provo to be the principal of Brigham Young Academy. Brother Mazur became the spiritual architect of what is now the largest private church-sponsored university in the United States that also has the reputation of high academic standards as well as being stone-cold sober. Jesse Knight, his wife Amanda, and Abraham O. Smoot helped keep the academy functioning with monetary assistance when the school was struggling financially. Others could be named who contributed in so many ways to create this institution you attend today. 
These men and women won't pass this way again, but they marked the pathway for you. In 1995, my husband received a church assignment to serve in the Europe North Area Presidency, and we moved to Solihull, England, where we lived for three years. Soon after arriving there, he and I were asked to accompany Elder and Sister Joseph B. Worthland to a fireside in Cardiff, Wales. It was a marvelous meeting, and I was especially touched by the music that evening. The Welsh people are beautiful singers. It would not surprise you to learn that the majority of the original members of the Tabernacle Choir were saints from Wales who emigrated to the Salt Lake Valley in 1849. As the congregation was singing the closing hymn, I was touched by the Spirit, and a thought entered my mind. I think I may have some Welsh ancestry. I am ashamed to admit that I had not paid much attention to my family history up to that stage of my life. However, before we moved, my mother had given me a family history book which contained family group sheets and other information about my ancestors and their lives. Upon arriving back home, I retrieved it from the shelf and opened it to see exactly who I was. I was not surprised, because the Spirit had told me so, to discover that I was approximately one-third Welsh. No wonder I had felt so at home at that time. A majority of my mother's maternal and paternal ancestors were from Wales. In learning of this, and as a result of the spirit I felt in Wales, I began to feel a powerful attachment to my ancestors. I read more about my progenitors and began to appreciate, respect, and admire them in a new way. From the time I had this experience to the present day, my desire to learn more about them has intensified. It is as if a bridge is connecting my past to my present. For me, the time and space between then and now is connected in a precious way with the bridges they built by the lives they led. The constructions of their bridges for their descendants have had and will continue to have an effect on me and the life I live today. There is a classic poem entitled The Bridge Builder which expresses the importance of building bridges during your lives. It reads, An old man going a lone highway came at the evening cold and gray to a chasm vast and deep and wide through which was flowing a sullen tide. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream had no fears for him, but he turned when safe on the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, said a fellow pilgrim near, you are wasting strength building here. Your journey will end with the ending day. You never again must pass this way. You have crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you the bridge at the eventide? The builder lifted his old gray head. Good friend, in the path I have come, he said, there followeth after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way. This chasm that has been naught to me, to that fair-haired youth, may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I am building the bridge for him. You have loved ones in your past who created pathways and bridges to connect you to them and thus enable you to benefit from their dreams, experiences, sacrifices, and teachings, necessary components of bridge building. Hopefully each of you can relate stories and histories of ancestors who have contributed to help create the person 
you are today. They have lived their lives and built bridges for you. They will not pass this way again, but knew that you would one day have to travel your own way. They knew that your journeys through life would take you over many hills and down into deep valleys. You will find a myriad of dangers along the way, but hopefully bridges created by your ancestors will enable you to avoid them during your earthly travels. Daily activities and experiences can be difficult if you do not have the safety of a bridge on which to travel. Now, my dear friends, it is your turn. At this moment, you are constructing bridges for your descendants. I don't believe I thought as much as I should have about what I was doing with my life in relation to my descendants when I was your age and pursuing my university education. I knew that I wanted to earn a degree, teach school, hopefully get married and have children. I don't recall thinking too much about grandchildren and great-grandchildren other than being sealed in the temple to have my family be an eternal one. However, in the world of today, where the morals and standards are declining and the adversary is gaining many in his camp, it is vital that we build bridges to link the generations before and after us. President Gordon B. Hinckley once stood at this pulpit and said, You young men and you young women, most of you will marry and have children. Your children will have children, as will the children who come after them. Life is a great chain of generations that we in the Church believe must be linked together. I fear there will be some broken links. Don't let yourself become such, I pray. It is now your responsibility to knit your generations together by the bridges you built. It may be that your descendants will have to cross many more troubled waters beneath them than the ones you are crossing over today. None of you wants to be the wink link in the chain of your family's generations. You are now the architects and project managers of your own bridges, which are to be constructed for those who will one day follow you. You must make and follow your own blueprints, secure the best and strongest materials and tools, study and gain the skills and knowledge necessary to complete the project. Your bridges will only endure when well built. Construction at times will be difficult, and you can be assured that challenges and struggles will block your way unexpectedly. There will be discouragements, sorrows, and heartaches, as well as successes and joys as you lay their foundations and build upon them. One may ask where to find a textbook or a manual which can assist you to become a competent bridge builder. What are the building blocks which are necessary to create an enduring and magnificent bridge? The answers are available to all. They are encompassed in the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guidance is available in the scriptures as well as in the writings and discourses of our modern-day prophets and leaders. You not, cannot construct perfect bridges because you are not perfect people, nor will you have perfect lives. However, by following the example of our Savior Jesus Christ during the building process, as well as keeping His commandments, you will be guided in creating sound and sturdy bridges. In conclusion, may I remind you that the Savior of the world built many bridges which can enable you to return and live with Him and your Heavenly Father. The ultimate one, however, is the bridge over death into eternal life. 
His life and teachings provide for you the blueprints to enable you to create your own bridges for others to use. It is my prayer that each of us may travel daily over the bridges our Savior constructed with love for us. May we continuously build our own bridges to be structurally strong and unbending as we are stalwart in our testimonies of Him. Would be my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Power of Motivation, with thoughts from Sterling W. Sill and Sharon G. Samuelson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.